Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. It's 30 with Murdy with your host, Sweeney Murdy. Hi, welcome back, everybody. On this episode of 30 with Murdy, we take a look back at a landmark baseball film, one of the best documentaries ever about the sport because of how unique the footage was. It's hard to find new images of the best-known and most photographed stars in the game's history, like Mickey Mantle and Babe Ruth, but when George Roy and his partner Steve Stern stumbled onto a collection of home movies that featured moving, full-color images of Mantle, Ruth, Jackie Robinson, Ted Williams, Lou Gehrig, and dozens of others from a golden era in baseball history, well, they knew they had found something special. Thirty years ago this summer, they turned that home movie treasure chest into the HBO film When It Was a Game. And it was amazing to see color images of players we mostly knew in black and white jump off the screen, showing small glimpses of their personalities outside the game. When It Was a Game was called from home movies taken between 1934 and 1957 with all their original color and weave together with player interviews and old poems to paint a picture of a simpler time in American sports, the film hit all the right notes and eventually led to a pair of sequels when even more original footage was discovered. George Roy was the executive producer of the film, his first after a career that began on the iconic baseball highlight show This Week in Baseball. For a look back at the 30th anniversary of When It Was a Game, here is my conversation with George Roy. George, the first thing I want to ask you is, what was it like for you to watch it again 30 years later? You put so much time and energy into making it, had kind of disappeared off your landscape for a while. So when you watched it again, what do you think? It was a lot of fun. I mean, I really enjoyed it. I hadn't seen it probably from beginning to end in at least 20 years. Uh, part of that has to do with the fact that, as we laughed about, it's hard to find a DVD player. You know? <laughs> yeah nowadays yeah. and i poked around a little bit to see if i could find it on demand somewhere and i think they do cycle it through hbo from time to time but it just wasn't part of their schedule at this point but uh i loved it and i think uh one of the things i really took away from it was when we did it originally in 91 uh, our intention was to sort of create a timeless piece that would be uh, just as relevant when you watched it years and years and years later, because it just essentially didn't change. And it kind of affirmed the thought that we had back then, because when I watched it, it was, it hadn't changed at all, which was sort of part of its charm. So I think when we sat out to do it, 
which was sort of not unlike creating like a scrapbook in essence. So when you open up a scrapbook 30 years later, the images still seem to be the same. So I think from that perspective, it was uh, it was really interesting. I think one of the things that I enjoyed is that I remember watching it at the time and seeing like the living history just pouring right out of it. But if you think back to the context of it, when it's out in 1991, you still have 26 teams in each league. Uh, there hasn't been a strike that's canceled a World Series yet. The highest paid free agents are only making three to four million dollars a year. Um, it seems quaint now, um, but this idea of oh look how far away we've been, you know, it's it thirty years later. It's it's even it feels even farther in that regard to me. Yeah, no, it does, it does, and just when you think that things can't end or get even more extreme, you know, the you look at values of teams, you know, when someone buys a team for, yeah. you know, $300 million in 1995, you say to yourself, how, how is that possible? And then 10 years later, it's worth 10 X and same with salaries and same with how far we've come from all the elements that we, that we did point out uh, and how the game was different back then and seemingly more romantic and slower and fans were connected to it a bit more. Uh, but it is kind of interesting how, you know, and I guess, not unlike the value of homes too. You just think that, all right, well, my, it's, it's never going to get higher than this. And yet somehow it does. And that's sort of what happens. And it sort of makes those times almost like fine wine. You know, it makes those times stand out even more, you know? I, uh, there's some, and there was one specific element of that that I'm going to come back to later on. But I'm curious, as, as you put this together, how did this begin? Do you remember the first time you saw one of these home movies, what was the process of getting them in your hands? How did, how did you come into contact with all of these home movies that became when it was a game? Yeah. Well, it has an interesting story uh, and a history like all these things usually do. Um, my partner and I, uh, Steve Stern, uh, were both at major league baseball productions for at least five years. I got there in 83. He was there a year before me. And I had produced uh, This Week in Baseball uh, with Mel Allen and worked with so many great people when I was there. It was such a great place to have your first job in the industry that you love. Uh, Steve and I got to the point in 1988 where we had become very friendly personally and professionally. And it had come time to sort of move on and see what the next chapter was. So we left Major League Baseball Productions and much to our surprise, uh, the Los Angeles Dodgers, whom we had had a working relationship with, said yes when we asked them if we could do their highlight film and this was 1988 and it was just him and i and uh in a little office somewhere on the west side with really no work at the time but just you know a desire to sort of do some things on our own and the dodgers uh you know shocked us and said yes you know so we did the los angeles dodger highlight film by ourselves in like a phone booth back then and everyone who knows baseball knows what happened that year. So Gibson hit the home run and it became like a thing. I mean, there was, you know, we'd laughed about DVDs, but they had VHSs obviously back then. And it was a hot item. It went kind of viral, I guess, let's say in Los Angeles, because it was an amazing season and it was an amazing ending to the season. Two years later, the Dodgers had their 100th anniversary. And at that point we had had a really good relationship with them based on that film. And, uh, they asked us if we wanted to do a history film uh, and we said, sure. And so we somehow serendipitously had uh, connected to this gentleman in 
Brooklyn. His name was Meyer Robinson, and he actually owned the Manischewitz Wine Company. Hmm. Um, and this is sort of how the genesis of when it was a game ironically started. Meyer had told us that he had a movie camera and that he had great seats because he would have the Dodgers over after all the games to sample his wine and to have a big, huge dinner once a week. So he'd have Pee Wee there and Duke and Jackie and all the guys there. And um, we went to his home and he brought out a huge, big box of color um, film. At that time, they were the, you know, from Rochester, New York, they were the yellow boxes, you know, everyone in their mind's eye can imagine what they were. And he put them in an old 16 millimeter uh, projector and played it for us. And we at the time had been at baseball for five or six years and we knew every inch of footage that existed, every, you know, archival element of baseball ever at that point. I'd never seen anything like this stuff. We were completely blown away. And we were young enough so that we had actually never had been in Ebbets Field as kids to see this. But in my mind, I'm thinking, geez, how would a 50 year old person who probably had never seen or imagined seeing Duke Snyder in color again, you know, they had seen him as a kid, but ever since then they had seen him in black and white and newsreels and all the stuff that major league baseball thrown out. So we knew that there was a magical element there. So we took it to HBO at the time and uh, Ross Greenberg and Seth Abraham was there at the time. Seth was a huge Brooklyn Dodger fan. And it was just like, like a warm knife through butter. We showed (laughs) them the stuff in an office one day and we all just were, kind of levitating like off the couch. We knew that there was something there and they were really, really magnanimous about giving us the time and giving us a little money to try to find more of this stuff because my mind and in Steve's mind, we thought, well, if there was a Meyer Robinson in Brooklyn, there's gotta be one in Cincinnati. There's gotta be one in Boston. There's gotta be one in Philly. And, and then when, before we knew it, we realized that Bell and Howell at the point at that time had been giving major league baseball players, as premiums and for appearing on radio shows and for doing stuff for and with their, um, you know, their, their, their various sponsors, they had given them these movie cameras who were relatively new at the time. So the players had cameras wow. and would use them and would shoot kids' birthdays and Thanksgivings and Halloweens and so forth. And then there'd be 10 minutes of spring training on there. And like <laughs> somehow all these things came together and it was a little bit daunting at first because we didn't have the advantages that we have now with the internet and, searching for people and looking for people. So after about nine or 10 months, we ended up finding like 60 or 70 hours of the color footage from all over the country. There are various teams, players, people associated with the teams. And uh, then we knew we kind of had something. And then we made a whole series of choices as to how to put it together. And uh, we're pretty happy with the way it came out. That's a really interesting nugget about the cameras given to players because one of the questions I was going to ask you is if you knew what the what the history was with you know the consumer end of the eight millimeter and 16 millimeter cameras because you know this isn't you're talking about footage that was shot in the 30s 40s and 50s this isn't like everybody walking around with an iPhone Um, and players I guess at that time would do anything to supplement their income because it was you know they're they were not being paid huge salaries. So when they were being given free items from sponsors, I mean, they would gladly use them. And so that answers a really important question here. That's a, that's a very small detail in the business of baseball back then, but without it, you don't have a show. No, you're exactly right. Without that. And also without the fact that the players, uh, 
all acted so uninhibitedly, you know, they were, it would be, it's not unlike, it's not like someone from the media nowadays trying to capture yeah. a nuanced moment or trying to capture an innocent moment. They were just their teammates. And so the imagery and the sense that these players give when they're fooling around or at their, you know, when they let their hair down a little bit, they're actually not letting their hair down. They're just acting natural because that's the way they act in front of their yeah. teammates. So we had the best of both worlds when it came to, capturing them in a in a moment in time which was clearly unique because they never would have acted like that in front of either strangers or someone from the supposed media you know it's like you know it's the last century's instagram is probably what it is it's guys just yeah. having fun on their own w w without having a big crowd around them and that's kind of one of my favorite parts about this is you know it's the non-game action that you captured. It's the people with their families or with their teammates or just at practice throwing a ball around. Um, they're waving to the fans who are holding the cameras in the stands. You can't get that now. Every, I mean, there are 20,000 people in the seats every night holding out phones and trying to get their um, their videos of people. The, the, the players aren't interacting with them, yet here you have Jackie Robinson walking up to the man behind the dugout and just waving to him in full color. I've seen black and white pictures of Jackie Robinson and Lou Gehrig. I've never seen them in full color. And you know, as many times as you saw it from the time that you first got these films in your hands to just watching the show again, you know, a couple of days before we talked, how, how does that image strike you that you're seeing people that you only knew as black and white still pictures and you're seeing them in live action full color? Yeah, no, I and mean, it was pretty, pretty amazing seeing it for the first time. And we would be like, it would be like Christmas morning, probably 75 times a year, because we would somehow have to figure out how to get the material from people. And it was either UPS ground or something yeah. and that, and the, and the film would arrive in our office in these huge big boxes. And we would just sit down and be so excited to watch them for the first time with the group of us. It was me and Steve and Eric Paulin and George A. Mir, who, uh, were the primary forces for us over the course of the year getting the stuff. And, uh, you know, it is interesting that you say that about the cameras because I've often thought of that too. And guys like Jackie Robinson and Joe DiMaggio and Ted Williams stopping and acknowledging someone, whether it was their teammate or someone in the first row with a camera. Yeah. And I think because these cameras were so unique and so special, it was almost like, like a glorified yeah. stop sign or something. It was almost like they were so <laughs> important. If someone had took the time to, aim yeah. the thing at you, you were going to stop and oblige them or tip your hat or do something. Whereas nowadays there's so many of them that they just become like wallpaper. Like yeah. none of them are important, but if you're the, if there's two or three people among 25,000 people, including one of your teammates that has this device, you know, you're, you're thinking to myself, Oh, geez, he's taking the time to aim it at me. I got to do something, you know? And so that was sort of interesting to sort of get a sense of that sort of less is more component of, how these things and how these images actually happen. And there isn't footage of these guys playing, but just being older men walking onto a field in live action, seeing Ty Cobb and Cy Young again, yeah. you know, I, I mean, I don't think you or I know anybody that saw these people walking around in real life. So to have those images, that must've been something that, that, you know, hit you a different way too, when you saw it. 
Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is here to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 15% better on average compared to other other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash odyssey podcast all lowercase go to shopify.com slash odyssey podcast now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash odyssey podcast this episode is brought to you by progressive insurance whether you love true crime or comedy celebrity interviews or news you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue and guess what now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the name your price tool from progressive it works just the way it sounds you tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. We were completely blown away when we saw Ty Cobb and Cy Young and even an older Babe Ruth in color. I mean, it was just... Um, it was a game, I mean, a complete game changer. We were just like stunned and we just like, we're, how are we going to figure out how, how not to screw this up? You know, we have to put a show together that people are going to enjoy and how do we do it and how do we execute it? Do we just put the stuff out there and just sort of let it roll and take advantage of the fact that the footage itself is so great? Or do we somehow figure out how to kind of combine it with uh, music and poetry and readings and that's sort of the route that we did go to try to complement it one way or the other without really kind of, I don't want to say ruining it, but without sort of, you know, um, overproducing it, you know, so it was a, a, a little bit of a balancing act there at first. And, um, you know, I think at that time or shortly thereafter, you know, Ken Burns had done his baseball piece mm -hmm. for PBS, you know, which is obviously great, you know, but we looked at sort of our shows as sort of the, like a golf schedule, like we're doing the masters, you know, mm -hmm. we're doing the U S open. We'll let him do the, you know, the Northwestern. We'll let him do, I don't <laughs> want to say quantity over quality. Cause yeah. he do he did a grip, but it wasn't going to be comprehensive. It was, we were going to 
do a show that was going to appeal emotionally to people who at 12 or 13 years old, you know, walked into Yankee Stadium or Fenway Park or Wrigley Field and have not had that moment since where they're seeing these people in color. Well, and you, and you found the right demo because if you're talking about in 1991, you know, the last 10 years have been this uh, real uh, explosion in nostalgia and collectibles around baseball. Right. The baseball card market boomed. All the autograph memorabilia and stuff boomed. The Mickey Mantle stuff took off basically from the early 80s into into the early 90s. So this is the time period where you're you're tugging at the heartstrings of the baby boomers who now have money to spend and look back fondly on their youth. I mean, you hit the exact right audience when you found this stuff. Yeah, no, we were we were a little surprised uh, by that, too. You know, we were all baseball fans, grew up uh, a generation or so afterwards. You know, we we came uh, to love the game, you know, in the 70s. So it was a, a little bit different. But we understood the connections as kids that we had the players because baseball always changes. You know, and in my mind, it was, you know, nobody like, you know, Roberto Clemente or nobody could catch like Johnny Bench or no one could like you. You just had players in your mind that you just connected to so significantly because it was such a big part of your life. You know, you'd be in the back playing wiffle ball and you'd co-op, you know, you'd go through the lineup and you were a certain guy and had all the batting stances. And we were those types of kids and yeah. people, Steve and myself. So we just assumed and, and knew from reading all the baseball books and how important baseball history was that uh, that was going to be a pretty easy audience to tap into once they got a chance to see this stuff for the first time, because it was really, it was really like ethereal. I mean, it was really like, literally when you think about it, these guys had not seen this. The only place you could see players was at the stadium. I mean, there was no, yeah. you, there was no digital component. There was no television. So, you know, you'd read about them and you'd argue about the players with your friends and so forth. And then the four or five times a year, you had the opportunity to go to a game, which in some cases was a lot. You cherished that experience and that, that stuck with you. And it, and it, and it, it was almost like it had not been opened again until they saw these clips. The, um, you know, there's a, uh, you know, Billy Crystal says it in uh, in City Slickers, which also came out in 1991. But he talks about you know, walking out in the Yankee Stadium and seeing the green grass and the copper roof because you only had a black and white television. So, again, right. seeing this stuff in color is something different. There's a couple of things that I remember picking out of this, watching it again, that really illustrate to you how different a time it was. One was that the Cubs and Red Sox are still considered cursed franchises because they haven't won anything yet. And we know that that's taken – it took to the turn of the century to – to get it done, but we know that changed. But I also find interesting, you have footage, you found the oldest existing color footage of a World Series game, which is 1938, Cubs-Yankees, but the Cubs had a parade before the World Series. There's this great footage of, you know, Letterman-style Cubs jackets walking through and into Wrigley Field, and the, the voiceover just says it's a parade they had before the World Series. Who has a parade before the World Series, George? <laughs> well, I think one of two things. They either had a premonition that it was going to be a short series and they were going <laughs> to lose in four, they were going to lose in four straight, which they did. Uh, maybe they were celebrating the fact that they had made it to just to play the Yankees. <laughs> they knew ultimately what the outcome was going to be. Or it was just a celebration on one of these big seminal baseball um, cities that pointed to the significance of the game itself, you know, baseball itself and what it, what it meant uh, to the people in Chicago to, 
have followed this team for so long and for them to get to this point. Um, to them, it was uh, important. You know, there were not too many other big major distractions going on in the way of sports or entertainment or whatever. And, and the Cubs to the people in Chicago were really special, you know, and I felt when you watch those images and see the um, ticker tapes, uh, you know, the, the all the stuff from that, you, you would think that they were at the Canyon of Heroes and they were yeah. celebrating a dramatic seven game win. But in fact, you're right. The, the series had not even started yet, but it, it was, it was interesting to see that. But I think it's sort of uh, the 30,000 foot view on that, I think is, is that baseball held such a special place in fans, hearts and minds at that point. That's different. And I mean, and this is before interleague play. You won your league. You won something. It meant something. So yes. celebrating that too. One of the other things that stood out, listen, the color footage of Yankee pinstripes doesn't really change the view very much, right? I mean, those uniforms uh, pretty much play out in color or black and white. But one of the things I noticed was yeah, in some of the Joe DiMaggio footage, you're, I'm watching the players behind him, and there's a number seven standing in the background, and it's not Mickey Mantle. And it takes you a second to remember that, you know, all these numbers that have been retired for decades now, that somebody else wore them. You see Joe D and saying, this is like the late 30s or early 40s. That's not mantle wearing some. That might be Tommy Henrik or somebody else. And it takes you a second to process that when you're watching it. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, 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 it is. Uh, we joke about the fact that uh, I was at the Yankee Red Sox game last week with my nephew and he was saying like at some point the Yankees are going to run out of numbers, yeah. you know, because they retired so many of them. But back then it was different. And the, I think the 38 team, it was Jake Powell. It's interesting because uh, if you Google him, he's got a whole another story, which is pretty fascinating and uh, fairly sorted actually. Um, and um, yeah, there was uh, my mind is a bit mushy these days, but there was a, they had given Mickey's number to another player after Mickey retired, like in the early fifties, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. until they at some point decided, all right, well, we've got to retire these numbers. Well, it's funny. Uh, you know, there's a large portion of this show that's devoted to uh, the world war two and the patriotism around world war two. One of the things that I, I find kind of, you know, I just happened to glance at it last night um, for a different reason, but the Yankees let another player named Nick Etten wear number five while Joe DiMaggio went to war. Joe DiMaggio's in World War II, um, you know, in the military service, and there's another, you know, baseball is still going. I mean, I, I thought about this a few years ago, thinking, wouldn't it be funny, like, if Derek Jeter went to Iraq and somebody else wore number two? Well, he was, I mean, it, it, it's because we attach so much to the player and their uniform and their number these days. I don't know that it meant anything to them back then because they, I mean, Joe, 19, think about 1942, Joe DiMaggio has already become Jolton Joe and they just gave his number to somebody else. I guess, I yeah, guess they yeah, couldn't afford the other the numbers MVP, back then. The, the MVP the year before. Uh, yeah. Who knows? I mean, it was all hands on deck at that point. Who knows? There might've been a new equipment manager. There might've been someone who had come along and, you know, there was a, just a case of uniforms there yeah. and somebody just threw it to someone and didn't look or didn't care. But you know, so many things have, have changed back then. I know that the players at that point probably could care less, you know, yeah. it's just a matter of, you know, trying to sort of, you know, brand the team and attach import to these numbers uh, was something that was a sort of a fairly modern thing when you think about baseball history, you know, I mean, modern meaning 60 or 70 years, right. you know. 
I'm, I'm kind of curious, and i got to look up and see if uh, Nick Etten was roughly the same build as DiMaggio, and maybe that's the reason he's <laughs> give him the actual shirt. Um, but it's funny, though. Like That leads me into something else, what you just talked about. There's a quote in there from Eldon Auker, who was a really good – you know, fountain of information and anecdotes for you during the course of this. And he said, you know, he was talking about the idea of like, you know, this is before free agency, well before free agency. And you were a property of that team. And he said, you were just like an automobile. They could get rid of you and get a new one at any time. And we've come so far in the labor relations part of baseball and the business part of baseball that we kind of forget what this used to be. And, And that the title kind of brings me back to something else that maybe isn't as much fun when you say when it was a game the players kind of treated it that way but the owners didn't the owners you know had their iron fist ways and their tight-fisted ways um for decades but what i kind of took george is from the, the players of that era didn't really seem to get all that bent out of shape about it they like they felt it was a game and as years went by you know, I think they understood, but at that particular point in time, it didn't seem like they cared that, you know, their livelihood was being shaped in a much different manner than what could have been if they had proper representation. Yeah, no, it's interesting because uh, that was one of the takeaways uh, from watching it again uh, all these years later. Uh, And we did discuss it back then that there was a real balance between the way we approached the show and there was a real balance between... um, the romantic, the romantic element of playing and participating in a game and the reality of it. You're right. I mean, the players were under the thumbs of the owners um, in all respects, every part of the game. And um, when a guy like Enos Slaughter talks about going to spring training after hitting 320 for five straight years and driving in 100 runs and literally, literally felt like he was tooth and nail, had to scrape and claw in order to make the team. So I think the connection that the fans had with the players of that era uh, was partly a result of that commitment that these guys made to the game and made to the craft and made to every single game running out to the outfield or running balls out or just getting it's it just the game seemed to kind of roll out differently because of the realities and because of the desperation that some of these guys would have without having guaranteed contracts and and guaranteed uh, money. And, um, you know, it was just, it just, it just connected, I think, the fans to the players as well. And the players were happy being Major League Baseball players because no one else from their neighborhood or no one else that they knew in their family w- was making $800 a month. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you were working at a store, working at in construction, or putting together, you know, a, a, doing a regular job back then, you were making a third of that, you know. So it, it everything's relative. So it was an honor to be a major league baseball player and make that kind of money and play the game you loved, despite the fact that you were probably being taken advantage of at at every turn. I mean, there was a. Yeah. Enos Florida tells a story about them traveling and they had obviously before the mid fifties, they would travel everywhere on uh, on the train, Mm -hmm. you know, and they weren't going out to California quite yet. That would come uh, years later, but they would travel from, you know, St. Louis after a double header and go to Philadelphia or whatever, 17, 18 hour train ride. 
and they would stop halfway. The train would pull over and they would play an exhibition game like at two <laughs> yeah. in the afternoon. So the, yeah. so the owner of the team could put $250 in his pocket. Yeah. You know, they would do those sorts of things. You know, it was just the reality of working for an owner. That's, it was no different from any other industry, except these guys were playing the game they loved. And I think, you know, in their minds, you know, they would, most of them probably would have played for free. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, there was, a, there, there wasn't really a thought you know, until later on, obviously, and rightly so in the, in the mid to late 60s with Kurt Flood and the like, it, it, things sort of began to change. But up until that point, they were pretty, they were fine with that trade off. The, um, the show holds up really well, mostly because I think we all s- still have some affinity for baseball history. Uh, one of the other things that really just makes it stand out is the score. The, the music score in, in this show was really fantastic, George. Yeah, no, it was uh, Ferdinand J. Smith uh, is the composer's name, and I've kind of lost touch with him. Um, I should probably circle back and see what he's up to. But um, yeah, it was, uh, you know, Ross Greenberg and I and Steve, uh, we kind of helped him as best we could in regards to sort of generally what sort of score we thought it would have. I remember kind of like a John Williams sort of thing going back and forth, and we had a couple other cues that we sent his way. But uh, when we heard that, particularly the first four or five bars, we were like, that's it, you know, that's it. And then that was so fun about watching the show again. You know, it was just, it starts with that and you just immediately just get drawn in and you're immediately, it's like a a time capsule. And the score, um, you're right. That's a very astute observation because the score really, really ties it together. And I can't even imagine what the show would be without the score, you know, and the music, from where I sit, you know, you spend months doing something and you you're like a kid waiting for the score, waiting for the music to kind of come together because the narrative and everything about the show takes on a whole different and goes to a whole different level if the score is really good. And that, and that's what it did. And I'll be forever grateful for how they came up with that and uh, how it's really stood up because it, it, it really is among the more timeless elements of the show. I mean, it really does stand up pretty well. I think, you know, the original show and its two sequels both have a lot of wonderful footage that just you people haven't seen before. It, it wasn't like you're compiling stock footage or, or just compiling things that have been in different places. You are getting material that nobody's ever seen of people that you know very well and have seen. Um, and if people can find them, I mean, you and I, you know, ran through fire drills just to get a DVD back and forth to each other. Uh, and it's it, there are parts of it that exist on YouTube and other places. But if people get a chance to watch this when it was a game, if you are a baseball fan of any kind, it certainly is is worth finding. I want to ask you about, you know, you mentioned something earlier when we were talking about where your career began on This Week in Baseball. And that's a show, you know, it, it's kind of been brought back in different ways. And MLB Network has a show that they use some of the Mel Allen clips. Um, but it's a much different world now. And mm-hmm. I, I want to know if you can put into some sort of context because you worked on the show, what it, how groundbreaking it was to gather a 30-minute show once a week that featured highlights of pretty much all the teams from around the league and highlighted the best and funniest and craziest plays of an entire week for 30 minutes on a Saturday or a Sunday. You know, now I can find everything seconds after it happens 
on social media if I didn't see it myself on one of the, you know, seven games that are on my TV every night. Or if I get the package, you know, you get you get them all. Um, you were working at a time when it was hard to get that. And it was a novel idea to gather footage from every major league team and package it together in one 30-minute show when the games you're showing are already a week or 10 days old. Um, but it was groundbreaking at the time. <laughs> what was that like working on it? Well... First of all, let me say it was the, definitely the coolest place I've ever worked at. And uh, I'm grateful that I was lucky enough to have started my career there because, as you know, it's always it's so important where you start and who you meet and sort of where you go from there. And when I got there, there had already been so many great people there um, who went on to do so many great things. And then when I got a chance to uh, shortly after I got there to kind of move up into the producer's rank, I had the opportunity to work with great people like Bob Bodsner and Joe Levine and Sean Mooney and Chris Chambers and all these people that went on to do great things both there and thereafter. And you learn so much so quickly because you did everything. You did, it's not like today when you come up and you're, well, you're a writer, so you're not going to go out in the field and produce. You're not, you're a, you're a, um, you know, you're going to, you're going to, um, you're an editor, so you're not going to, produce necessarily. We, we did it. We did everything. They just threw us in and said, go. And so we would go to spring training with a group of us and we would have the time of our lives and we'd be talking to all these players. And, and it was just so much, so much fun. That was my sort of my macro takeaway. As far as doing the show goes, it was challenging because um, basically of, because of the how and to what degree it takes take a Seattle Mariner game that was played on 1030 at night in Seattle. I mean, what we're relying on those four three quarter inch videotapes somehow yeah. to get to Seattle, to get to New York, right? you know, after the game ends on, it's not like, you know, you can just send a file or download something or upload something. So that was challenging. And we'd often have to kind of plot the show around when we'd get actually get the footage, you know? And so we would, we would watch the, the, the keep in touch with baseball as best we could throughout the weekend and then come in on Monday and have a, the Bob Bodsner, who was the lead producer on the show. I was so lucky to work with him for three years. He, him and I would create, you know, a plot for the show. And at that point there had been a series of the younger guys that had been there. We all started off as viewers, you know, so you'd sit in a big row and just view games and look for, bloopers and great plays and we had sheets where we would pick out all the highlights and things like that and everything was all on paper and it was all three quarter inch videotape and we would just somehow by hook or crook we would we would throw it together and worked long hours and like we all do nowadays and it was just you know it was just it would come together after a while and you'd work with people who were really uh committed and passionate about trying to do the best show you possibly could and it, it could get challenging but it was uh it was it was fun at the same time and often it would come down to the last hour or two and but you know it 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 often like i said earlier it would depend upon you know how quickly we were able to get games because you know when you think of the late the mid 80s um if the mariners played let's say the royals on 10 30 on monday there's a chance that you couldn't get that tape until thursday yeah you know so it was challenging from that perspective, but it was, I mean, it was just heaven. I mean, Mel, to be working with Mel Allen every week and to, 
you know, just be in the trenches with these guys and, and, and women and just getting it done. It was like, and like, it was the most fun I've ever had. And it also, uh, it was the most I've ever learned because you're kind of just learning under fire. You just sort of, you're learning on the fly. And after two or three, four years of doing that, you come away thinking, geez, I, I can kind of do anything now, you know? And that was, that was really the, t- the case. I'll give you another example. I mean, late eighties, early nineties is this Bo Jackson highlight um, when he throws out Harold Reynolds at home plate. That's exactly, that's Mariners Royals at 10 o'clock at night, like you're talking about. Yeah. And if a play like that happened today, we would all see it five seconds after it happened. And I don't know how long it took to see that play, but I know that you know the majority of people who saw it didn't see it when it happened or even the night it happened. Most of the people saw it probably days after it happened. Yeah. Um, I guess you know Sports Center was around, so you could have you know that was a that was a yeah. little bit of a game changer too. But the immediacy of things, I mean, there's there was still a, a, a place for a show that would just compile things and bring them to a nice little package that because you didn't have time to watch everything all over the place. And oh, yeah, no, and, 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 uh, and this week in baseball was very special to a lot of people. And it was special because of that component. You know, it would be the one place where you'd be able to see, you know, the the Padres or that series, you sure. would, you'd get to see some of these different teams that maybe you were a fan of, or you had some interest in it because your dad grew up there. Or you had some sort of connection to a team outside your market. And, and you're right. I mean, sports center did come along, but then, you know, there were a lot of people that didn't have cable TV. Sure. So, you know, that one or one thirty, that syndicated television market would tune in right before their home game on a Saturday or Sunday. And this week in baseball will be on before the Yankee game or the Met yep. game. And, I never forget living in the George Washington Hotel on 23rd between Park and Lexington. And that's where I lived for two years. And I would get up on Sunday purpose. I did this purposely. And I'd walk down the hall and I'd hear the show. <laughs> in some of the rooms, like there'd be a couple old timers in there. And they, that was, they would watch the show regularly. And I would just walk down the hall, just listening to the, again, we talk about themes and music. Yeah, and, yeah. I mean, when it was a game and, and this week in baseball, pretty iconic themes, both of them, you know, the gathering crowds was the name of that yes. music. And it just sticks to you now, you know, it just, it was something special about, you know, that moment in time and obviously everything changes and there was really no need for a weekly baseball highlight show, but it did become part of people's lives in, in, a, in a real significant way. I can tell you, listen, as a kid growing up in Pennsylvania, if I wanted to see Rod Carew, for example, I saw him in the All-Star game and I saw him on this week in baseball. And that yes. was it. There were no other periods in my life when I could watch him play um, during the course of that time. Um, you've worked on so many great projects and HBO has been a partner of yours for a long time. And um, you and I have talked over the years as some of these have happened. You, you know, I mean, there's a Mickey Mantle doc that people have probably seen that you did. Um, I'm going to forget some or maybe mix some up, but Dean Smith, uh, uh, Miracle on Ice, um, I think the 72 Olympic basketball team, basketball, that, that was yours too. Um, you have a dream project that you're still trying to think of that maybe you want to work on that uh, is kind of in the wings here? Nothing in the wings as far as dream projects go. I, I was always a huge fan of Roberto Clemente when I was a kid, and I always wanted to do a full-length documentary on him. Uh, there's been a couple that have been done, and they've actually been quite good, so I don't know. Maybe the window's shut on that. Uh, 
I was always and still am infatuated by uh, Satchel Page. I mean, I think he's got a really great story when you can weave in the history of the Negro Leagues and the, and the, and the character that he was and the ability and the charisma they had him. And here was a guy who pitched in the major leagues when he was 65 years old, you know, for the Oakland A's against the Red Sox. And there's just so much that you could work in there that is above and beyond baseball. You know, uh, even, I mean, the problem with that is, is that, you know, you'd have to have a big budget. You'd have to recreate a lot of things. There's, there's not a lot of footage, Uh, but the books and the stories and the legend uh, of Satchel Paige would be a fun project and also be, uh, I think, a really educational and, and, and um, worthwhile project to, to do. Um, who would do it? Who knows when I might be able to find a time to do it or try to get someone interested in doing it. Uh, I just heard this week that Spike Lee is going to be doing a project, I think, with Netflix on the on the Negro League. So I'm not sure if I'm supposed to talk about that or not. That's but, all right. Uh, we'll all find out, I guess, yeah. at some point. And so maybe they'll do some. I'm, I'm sure that he'll be a huge part of that. Um, uh, beyond that, I don't, you know, there's, I pick up things from time to time and look, I just read a couple of weeks ago where the pirates had honored the 1971, uh, Pittsburgh pirate team, which I thought for the last 25 years would be a great documentary. Same with the, like the 71 all-star game. There's these, you know, the, that interesting period of time where baseball had sort of not gotten over the hump, but there was a recognition and maybe they hadn't even realized it at the time, but the 71 Pirates being so integrated. And it was the first time a, mm-hmm. an all African-American Latin team um, had, um, you know, one to nine and then a bunch of pitchers. And then just the the irony and the shame of the fact that, you know, we're now, Jesus, how many years? 50 years 50 later? 50 years, yeah. Yeah, 50 years later. And, 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 and baseball, you know, by hook or crook, I don't know whose fault this is ultimately, but, you know, the trend at that point and the possibilities of going forward with those sorts of teams and the complexion of those sorts of teams really kind of fell by the wayside. And those big macro elements like that, that speak to things beyond and so much more significant to baseball are so important to have in these shows. And you'd use a team like the 71 Pirates, who obviously were led by Clemente and Stargell but, you know, I think of Dave Cash and Rennie Stennett and, and, and all the pieces, you know, Manny Sanguian and yeah. just the, the way that that team looked and carried themselves and, you know, how cool they were. Um, and then to have in 2021, you don't even really even have a sense of any of whatever that possibility was, you know, and there's, it's, it's kind of that to me would be an interesting. And again, it's I think it's been done like in maybe in print and there's not a lot of the guys left anymore. Um, Some of them have died, you know, at a young age. Um, So, um, and there's always something that, you know, pops along that, that piques your interest, but uh, you know, I'm getting old now at this point. So if I don't do them all, you know, that's fine with me. I'll get the golf clubs and the fishing rod out and I'll be happy, you know. My thanks again to George Roy, executive producer for When It Was a Game. The film is kind of hard to find because it's not currently on HBO's streaming platforms, but if you are able to find it, it's worth the watch. And George has produced several other wonderful sports documentaries in the years since, including one on the Miracle on Ice 1980 U.S. Olympic hockey team and one on Mickey Mantle. You know how much I love my movie tie-ins. So... 
Get ready for next week, a very special 30 with Murdy built around the upcoming Field of Dreams game, which is coming on August 12th, featuring the Yankees and White Sox. I think you're going to like this one, so stay tuned. Better yet, subscribe now, and you'll get it delivered when it's up next week. So until then, like I said, hit subscribe and review and all that jazz. And until next time, I'm Sweeney Murdy. Thanks for listening. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Baseball season is heating up. Odyssey has you covered with the most entertaining coverage of your team. Stay locked in and in the know with the local voices you trust as they bring you unfiltered takes, recap games, react to the latest team news, and talk to callers. Listen to your favorite shows for free on the Odyssey app, odyssey.com, your smart speaker, or in the car with Android Auto or Apple CarPlay. 